So for today's teaching text, John 19, 28 through 29. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning, everybody. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to ask for your help again. We, we I, I ask for your help every week, Lord, but I pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit wants to say to us through this uh, short cry of Jesus on the cross that he was thirsty. I pray that uh, you would communicate the truth that each of us needs to hear through this. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I read a novel years ago um, that was set in Brooklyn, actually set in the uh, Hasidic section of Crown Heights. Um, the book is called My Name is Asher Lev. You may have, you may have heard of it. It's by Chaim Potuk. I think that's how you say his name. And um, uh, there are scenes in that book, right? This happens to you if you love novels, that you have scenes that just pop back into your mind over and over again. And My Name is Asher Lev is one of those books for me uh, where scenes from it just come back into my mind. It's different. I, mean, I think part of it is set in Brooklyn. And so as you're moving through familiar areas, the, the scenes from the book will flash into my head. And, and the book is about this boy who is growing up in a Hasidic community. He's an artist. He's wrestling and struggling to sort out how he relates who he feels like he is to his community of faith and where he comes from. But he describes his family and this, like, his father's this large bearded man who moves through their Orthodox house and uh, uh, Asher will describe him as he's narrating the story that he'll go through the house singing in Hebrew. And the boy often returns at different moments in his life to the memory of his father moving through the house, kind of ambling through his room or sitting at the dinner table singing out in Hebrew. And, and you'll get a sense, right? any great author sort of takes you there, you get a sense of the size of the man and his movement through the house and how the furniture reacts to his, his passing. And, and you get a sense of even the smell of the place and his beard and his deep voice and the resonance of him singing in this, you know, the cadence of this, this ancient language and, and sort of keeping something alive for his family and for his son. And um, it's so beautiful. I, 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 I think about that when I sing to my kids and I'm like, you know, my sort of like uh, scratchy voice, you know, banging out amazing grace before I leave, you know, leave them in the triple bunk bed every night. I think like maybe one day they're going to think back to the memory of me singing. And, and it's because, and part of it, right, it's all the stories we shape come to the weave together to help us understand our, our lives in some way. But um, I think about that a lot when I'm singing to my own kids, but I also think about it a lot when I read the Psalms, because, right, we know that the Psalms are the prayer book of Israel, but they were also, many of them are meant to be sung. And I think about Asher Lev's father singing the Psalms to me uh, when, when, when I read the Psalms sometimes. And I'm like, I, I don't know what the tune is. There's be an inscription at the top of some of the Psalms. It's like, this is to the tune of lilies. Like, you guys know that old Hebrew hit, lilies? Um, and I'm like, what would it be like to have Asher Lev's father sing this song? I think that would be powerful for a number of reasons. One is just like to hear it sung and, and to like sort of let the, the melody and the message of it wash over. Um, but, but, but also because I think, gosh, if, if someone was singing these psalms to me on a regular basis, there's 150 of them, so there's a lot. 
But if someone was singing these psalms to me on a regular basis, then I feel like I would, I would begin to ingest, I would begin to have sort of in the background of my consciousness the words of these, these, these prayers, the words of these, these sort of songs of hope. And I think that was what was happening with Jesus. I think he grew up in a home where uh, they were singing these psalms over and over again because when it gets to the words that Jesus says on the cross, a bunch of them come from the psalms. It's like as, his, as he's in this weakened state and his mind is grasping for anything to hold on to like we do in our most desperate moments. Our, we're just like, you ever been so anxious that you can't really get your mind to settle on one thought or, or so, so, so afraid or so, you know, so, so depressed or so you know, caught up in what's going on that it's really hard. And it's sort of like whatever is just running in the background of your consciousness begins to surface in those moments. And so as Jesus is literally getting to his last breath, I imagine that he has these songs that his mother sang over him, that his father sang over him, um, and maybe his crazy uncle Yusef, that's not theologically correct necessarily, but then maybe he sang over him. I like church music, sort of. Um, I struggle with it sometimes, though. Uh, and we're get, I think we're, 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 get, we're getting better. And I, I don't know, this is not the time for, for a large critique, but I think it'll be tremendously helpful. Let me say it in the positive. If our expectation of our prayer life had as wide a range of emotional vocabulary as the Psalms do. Like we can't just grow up singing about God's grace and mercy and rhyming love with dove and grace with fill this space. And then you kind of get out into the real world and it's like, do the songwriters of the church world know anything about my actual life? Because I'm getting slammed here. And and I'm grateful for, uh, for, for, for Psalms. Like Psalm 69 is where where the, the, the prophetic promise that the Messiah was going to say, I'm thirsty on the cross, comes from. But it's not just the words, I'm thirsty, that are important. It's the whole context of the psalm. And so to have a song that your father, that your mother, that, that your community sang together, that's like making, it's normalizing something like this. Save me, O oh God. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Like it's hard for a Christian radio DJ to be like, getting you home on your commute this afternoon with songs of hope and inspiration. The flood waters have reached my neck. But we have to have a wide-ranging emotional vocabulary to, to, to really deal with, with life because my guess is that, that many of you have really felt this type of thing. You've, you've wanted to voice a prayer that was like, God, you got to come through for me. You better save me. I don't have anything to hold on to. I feel like I am utterly sinking. This anxiety is too much. This depression is too much. This life stage is too much. This addiction is too much. This brokenness is too much. I need absolute, I'm worn out calling for help. We need songs that give language to the real experience of our soul's a little for, late, later down, like, we should know that a robust prayer life, a life of real substantive faith, contains things like, I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. 
I picture Jesus growing up hearing this song by his mother or his father. To the tune of the, to the, tune of the lilies is what it says. It's a long psalm. I don't know if they sang the whole part, but by the time you get down to the, the later sections of it, it says this, scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. Jesus is gonna mention this as he's been nailed to a cross. Like, talk about the giving up of options. He's literally been nailed down to one place. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none, right? Remember when he went to pray with his closest friends? just before he knew this tremendously overwhelming thing was going to happen, and those jokers fell asleep. They, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. In this hour of need on the, on the cross, right, as, as Jesus, his consciousness is beginning to fade, the pain has certainly become something like delirium, He's in the throes of extreme exhaustion. He lets out a simple confession from his lips. I am thirsty. And all that's there is cheap soldier's wine. This is like 10 times worse than Trader Joe's two-buck chuck. This is the very worst. And it says, and they gave me vinegar for my thirst. Now, I want you to, to, to realize that out of the parched throat of a failed Jewish revolutionary, a peasant man whose followers were scattered. Out of the parched throat, he croaks out this cry, I am thirsty. And an over thousand year promise is fulfilled in that very moment that they would give him vinegar for his thirst. Somehow, the swell of ancient promises that God was going to fix the world, that he was going to use Israel intimately in the process, that all their brokenness and all their exile and all their futility and lack of hope was going to swell up and be embodied in one person, Messiah, who was going to come into the world and change everything. But they had no idea what to expect because they're constantly expecting this Messiah is going to kick Rome out and establish Israel as, as, as a national powerhouse. But he's doing something entirely opposite. He's going around healing people and lifting up the broken and, and including the marginalized and, and having meals with people he shouldn't. And, and, then, and then finally it looks like the whole thing's falling apart because he's on the cross and he's, he's been beaten. He's been falsely accused. He's been beaten again. He's been nailed down. And he's dying, like he's suffocating because he can't hold himself up against the nails anymore. And he cries out, I thirst. And it's a fulfillment of a thousand-year-old prophecy, but it's also just the expression of an ordinary longing. What a profound moment. I am thirsty. Whatever else you think about Christianity, it's profound that Christianity tells a story where God says, I am thirsty. Where God can have a dry, sore throat, where God can suffocate. And this is the same Jesus who don't forget. Very first miracle. Anybody remember Jesus' very first miracle? Somebody? Water to wine. Thank you very much. You guys, you guys win the prize. Um, 
His, it was, he turned water into wine, and not just, not just any water. He took six massively huge stone basins of water that were there for ritual purity so that people could go into the presence of God in, in, in cleanliness. And he, he said, I'm changing the way the whole system works. And he changed six massive stone basins for ritual purity into the finest vintage red anyone had ever tasted. So much so that a wedding party that was going on for like a week and people that were half in the bag so noticed that this wine was incredible that they they remarked about it they were like what is up with this you saved the best for last what are you doing whatever else that first miracle is about it is about abundance right we so sink down into a scarcity mentality like we know i am thirsty but do we know more than you could ever need all turned into the richest wine this is the same Jesus who, who, who was traveling through Samaria and he encounters this woman at a well that he wasn't even supposed to be talking to and he himself was utterly exhausted and he sent his friends into the town to get lunch and he's interacting with this woman and he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone, he says later in that same interaction, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's John 4. John 7, at the height of Jesus' public ministry, at the Festival of Tabernacles, Jesus shows up. People didn't think he was going to come. People are wondering what he's going to do, and he stands up at a loud voice at this moment where the whole worship service is, 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 is looking at the provision of Yahweh f- uh, to Israel in the desert of water from a rock. And Jesus stands up, and in a loud voice, he cries out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now this very same Jesus is parched. His throat is agonizingly dry. He is dying. The river of living water, whatever that is, seems to be a million miles away. One of our best living theologians, uh, N.T. Wright, speaks about this moment. He says, he must come to the place where everyone else is. The place of thirst, shame, and death. We have the seven final recorded sayings or words of Jesus from the cross. I want to put them up for you for just a second so you can see them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A a word of forgiveness, even for those who are killing him. Today you will be with me in paradise. A word that the hope that Jesus is bringing transcends even physical death and and holds out a promise that we're gonna be united with God forever. Woman, here is your son taking care of, of acknowledging that no matter what the world has done to us, God cares to bring us into a family and that that family transcends even our race and bloodline and, and, and unites us forever. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me it's this mystery you want to talk explain this to a seven-year-old God is one being and yet somehow higher than a human being and so his complexity is like up from single cell organism to human being now go from human being to whatever God is the scale is a massive jump so somehow God in his very being has father son holy spirit and yet is one being that God is somehow separated from himself like he never was before on the cross and so Jesus is crying out why are you abandoning me 
so that you and I would never have to be abandoned and could know the Father heart of God all the way through. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you turning from me? Because he had put on him all that we deserved. And then it is finished. Is this final word that the full debt has been paid. We're going to talk a lot more about this on Good Friday. But the full debt has been paid. The full redemption has, has been accomplished. And then, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Like, I'm coming to you, God. Like, the, the, the cosmic theological reach of every one of these words is so profound. And you know I skipped one. Because which one doesn't belong? I'm thirsty. In between, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is finished. Is I am thirsty. I'm so grateful for that. Because... A bunch of reasons, but because there was a, a miraculous 1,000-year prophetic fulfillment that said the Messiah was going to be thirsty and they were going to give him vinegar. So that's one thing. But then the way it actually manifests is that Jesus has one of the most pedestrian longings that you can have. It doesn't matter how detailed and thorough I am with the bedtime routine at my house. No matter what. The last question I will be asked when I'm leaving is, can I have some water? It's like, we had to have covered this, surely. There's water in this place. And they're like, it's from yesterday. It's a little warm. I'm like. (laughs) They're like, let it run a little bit. (laughs) Every single night, my kids cry out, I'm thirsty. And I'm their dad, and I'm annoyed, but I help. <laughs> Thought we dotted every I, crossed every T. I'm thirsty. I'm so glad God was thirsty. I'm so glad that in dealing with our cosmic problem of sin and the brokenness that ripples out through all of humanity, that he also says, listen, my throat's dry. I need something to drink. Of all the religious ideas in the world, and I want you to think about this, here's the only one where God is glorified by weakness. Right? In the old mythology, right, the gods were weak, you know, but like they weren't glorified for their weakness. Here's God accomplishing healing and rescue and salvation in life through being nailed down and being thirsty to death. Can't get air into his lungs. God accomplishes the redemption of the world with a dry throat and a raspy voice. God comes all the way into your story, not just to deal with your biggest, baddest failures, the abuses and the racism and the neglect and the murder and the lusts of our story. He also comes all the way to the thirst. To the longings of an ordinary Wednesday, to the immensely human desires that you have on a daily basis, do you believe that God cares about those? Do you believe that Jesus identified with those? Do you believe that there's not a single one of them that you can experience and God's like, I don't know and I don't care? <coughs> if, you, if you missed last week's talk, I want to ask you to go back and listen to it. My friend Tyler came from Trinity Grace Williamsburg and he shared about a 
they obscure Old Testament vow that he took uh, called the Nazarite vow. And basically, like, out of a conviction that if he was going to speak uh, abundant life to uh, a culture like New York, that he had to let go of some of the things that New York was holding on to for abundant life. And it is a tremendously powerful word. God's been using it. Uh, I've had friends from across the country say, I listen into the podcast. I, I don't always. And I'm like, yeah, okay, thanks a lot. But, um, but Tyler's message was fantastic. And I'm like, great, cool. No, that's great. I support that. But what, what he was saying, right, what we're always saying, what Jesus is saying is that the counterintuitive invitation of God is that if you want abundance and if you want full life, we have to die to ourselves in a very real way. We have to die to these old streams that we've learned to drink from that, that Tyler said that almost work, right? He was quoting from, from John Ortberg's book, Eternity is Now in Session, that is really hard to give up on something that almost works, and many of us have been trying to get, we've been digging deep into the well, into a bunch of wells that almost work. Jesus really did promise abundant life. He promised it like rivers of living water would be gushing up in you. That you would have a source that would never dry up. And then on the cross, he's dying of thirst. His death has to become our death. We have to be willing to be thirsty. Tyler was talking about how when we begin to fast from the things of the world, the old wells, it feels like starving at first. It feels like dying of thirst. Like I'm not gonna have this deep need of my soul met unless I meet it on my own. And God's saying, listen, I want you to trust me that I can meet it in a way that's so much more profound. I know many of you believe Jesus will forgive your sins, you believe in, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is finished. But I wonder how many of you believe God cares about your ordinary, everyday pedestrian longings. <laughs> that he understands your thirsts. That he knows the dissatisfaction that you have with your career. <laughs> that he knows the loneliness that you feel at night at times and have struggle articulating. And he knows about anxiety that sometimes rises in your throat and, and makes it difficult to say what you mean. He knows what it's like to f that you sometimes feel really utterly bored, even with 40 streaming services pumped into your TV. He knows that sometimes that you struggle to feel the love that you have for those around you. He knows about your resentments. He knows that you're thirsty On the cross, Jesus is winning a victory that all nations are going to be able to share in. But right in the middle of it, this cross also comes to bear on your dry, sore throat, on your exhausted commute. Does God see that? On your tears of frustration, on the smallest ache that you're embarrassed to name, on any untold fear that you have. We have a God who never needed to be a God of abundance, but who became thirsty for us. I believe there's a prophetic word that's uh, being spoken over our church right now, and the word is that it, God is digging new wells. 
I think, uh, what he's been stirring in us for a long time. Some of us know what it's like to die of thirst and to regularly be drinking, right? We know our lusts. We know how far booze can take us. We know like what the ethos of consumption that, that, that our, our, our city operates on. We know how far our ambition can take us. We've drunk from these wells for so long and we're dying of thirst from them. And God is saying, listen, I'm digging new wells. I wanna teach you to drink from the living water that is flowing from the cross. And I want to invite you to begin your journey towards that well today, knowing there's a God who can fully identify with your thirst. So that's the question. Will you bring your thirsts to God today? Will you bring the deep longings of your heart? Will you bring the secret unspoken things you've been wrestling with and longing for? Will you bring the things that you thought were too pedestrian for God to care about? in the middle of accomplishing a cosmic redemption that stretches all of history and brings in every nation for you and me, God said, I was thirsty. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this word In the midst of all the other words, I thank you that you have known our thirst. You have known what it is to be parched and dry. I thank you that you were willing to demonstrate your love in such suffering. That you haven't just prescribed for us a life of high ideals, but you have immersed yourself in our actual story and real history. I pray, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we could, we could hear your invitation today to bring the thirst of our soul, the thirst of our body, the thirst of our minds to you, to truly believe against all odds that you are the most satisfying thing in the world, that you've made us for relationships, you've made us for deep union and love, and I pray you would pour that out as we worship, as we come to this table, as we eat and drink together. So we try to live as family. Would you quench our thirst with your living water? In Jesus' name, amen.